Welcome to Media at Risk, a podcast from the Center for Media at Risk at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. In today's episode, Annenberg alum Noor Halabi speaks with two scholars whose work touches on different aspects of the ethics of representation and care. You'll hear first from Lily Chuliaraki about her work on the photographic practices of migrants and journalists, and second from Manel Maktani, who theorizes the academic and journalistic interview as a site where power relations are subtly reproduced. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Media at Risk. I'm Noor Halabi, Assistant Professor of Media and Communication at Leeds University. On this episode, we'll be hearing from two scholars, Lily Kuliaraki, Professor and Chair in Media and Communications at the London School of Economics, and Manel Mahtani, Associate Professor in the Department of Gender, Race and Social Justice at the University of British Columbia. They'll be speaking about the ethics of representation in journalistic practice. First, we'll hear from Lily, who has devoted her career to studying the ethical challenges of mediated suffering from Somalia to New York. To start us off, I'll begin by asking her about her forthcoming project on European coverage of the refugee crisis, and particularly about her attention to refugee selfies as an overlooked and under-theorized image within this discourse. I'll start us off with a very pertinent problem, I think, for journalists and academics alike, which is the invisibility of the refugees sometimes from some of the discourses. Um, A lot of the conversations that we have, both in sort of immigration research and in journalism, focuses on the crisis and neglects the stories of the refugees themselves. Um, How do you think selfies sort of add into that conversation a presence or demand a presence of the refugee? So to begin with, I completely agree with with the point about invisibility of refugees and migrants. And this is something that has been established a long time ago in relevant literature. Mm. Regarding the most recent crisis of 2015, I would say uh, research that other scholars did as well as our own research at the London School of Economics in the Department of Media and Communication has established exactly that fact and it has established it across platforms and across mm-hmm. uh, modes of communication so uh, we're talking about invisibility both in terms of narratives news narratives and, and, and refugee and migrant stories but we're also talking about images Mm-hmm. And, and what these images say about about uh, the predicament of those of those people, um, and even uh, when we are not talking about invisibility as such, mm-hmm. the lack of imagery or the lack of stories, uh, we are talking about a very restricted repertoire mm-hmm. of positions um, and that refugees and migrants are given. So um, we usually see them as either victims or as a threat mm-hmm. to us. Now. When it comes to selfies, basically we are looking at a kind of a, a subsection of that broader repertoire of, 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 um, of resources that we have to talk about them and to mm-hmm. visualize them. The question uh, for us arose because selfies are, are an important part of the contemporary visual economy. And even though we do see selfies everywhere today in social media platforms, uh, often we see them also in mainstream media, 
uh, on television, uh, online, etc., etc., refugee selfies and migrant selfies as such um, have not been part mm-hmm. of, that, of that broader space of, of visibility. And so the question um, I, I asked was why is it in particular that we, see, we never see the face of a migrant or a refugee at the moment that they are actually taking it? Uh, why is it that their face is just not part of what we are used to seeing about them? Why do we see them as groups, anonymous, massified, usually from a distance? Why do we have certain patterns of representation um, which never includes the face? The face as they have photographed it, as they have, in a way, decided to put it up front in, in, mm. in, in, in digital platforms. So that was the starting point of, of, of that piece of, of work. So uh, the research tried to do two things. On the one hand, ask the question of what kinds of faces of refugees do we see? And in, in so doing, it kind of led to a search for the different styles of representation that are, or media. And indeed, there are some selfie-related pictures of refugees that we can see. None of those, however, uh, show the face of the refugee as it is taken by them and, and as a kind of singular representation of themselves. Mm-hmm. So they're always either with other people or represented by others as refugees, or what we see is long shots of groups of refugees taking selfies. Uh, How does the selfie raise ethical concerns for journalists in the way that, you know, the other issues that you look at in your own research? Well, that takes us um, into the second thing (laughs) that I I was about to say that that project on refugee selfies actually does, which is not only look and typologize the the representational styles of of the refugee face, but also uh, look at the selfie itself as a a genre of representation and ask the question, so what is it specifically about the selfie that makes it almost a forbidden genre Mm -hmm. when it comes to using it in order to represent those particular um, groups of people, migrants and refugees? And I think there is work to be done there in in relation to how we theorize the selfie as a mode of representation, uh, but as a social statement, what does it say? and also as a technology of power. And so these are the kind of concerns that um, I I, I would like to bring into kind of current theorizations of uh, journalism, uh, journalistic narrative, humanitarian uh, communication. Mm -hmm. I think there's a very fertile ground there for starting thinking about the self beyond the dominant paradigms that we have been thinking about it so far. on the statement you made that selfies are part of our contemporary visual economy because that brings out the economics of all of this as well. Uh, What role did you see the sort of commercial models of uh, news organizations playing into these dynamics? Well, I think that the, the, the trend that I mentioned earlier that basically Western news operate on a particular 
understanding of how refugees and migrants should be reported on. Mm. That is something that we need to repeat and that is something that we need to keep at the front of our critical research on crisis journalism and, and, and the journalism of migration. Because for different reasons, which have to do with, uh, you know, pragmatic and, and economic, uh, but also cultural reasons, journalism tends to draw upon given routinely used stereotypes of, of who these people are and how they can be narrated um, in, in our news. Um, and as I said, that repertoire is is very restricted. Mm. So one of the questions that we should be asking in terms of representation is, are there other ways uh, in which refugees and migrants can be narrated? Which are those other ways? And what needs to change in journalistic practice uh, in order for those new narratives and those new imaginations of the condition of the refugee and the migrant um, uh, to come forth? I'm thinking a, a very difficult... A very difficult sort of normative standpoint as well is to think that journalism has some sort of moral responsibility in the cases of covering situations like these. Does part of your interest in looking at selfies or rather coverage of refugees in general in the media stem from this notion that journalism, media occupy a moral position? I think once we start thinking about uh, migration and the coverage of migration, and, and, and the practice of, of, of receiving migrants mm-hmm. in the context of, of, of Western countries, we are entering a minefield because the whole field of representation and practice of reception is, is, is full of tensions. So one tension has to do with journalism, mm-hmm. and it is the tension between, on the one hand, commercialization, right, national interest as well, and on the other hand, being good to others. A vision that journalism is there for the good and that these people are suffering and therefore we need to somehow provide the resources to our audiences to mm-hmm. kind of deal with that suffering in an acceptable way, culturally acceptable way. So how that tension between on the one hand fearing and wanting to exclude and on the other hand pitying and wanting, and to, wanting to care is being resolved, is, is, is one of those tensions on the journalistic front. But there is another one, which is, I think, equally um, significant, if not more significant, which is the tension within European or, or US governance structures. How do you govern mm-hmm. the border? What do you do with migration? And there, I think, you have a similar tension. Uh, contemporary management of the border has to do with, uh, or, or always takes place within regimes of humanitarian uh, security. So the border is a very torn place because on the one hand you've got the military managing numbers, uh, including and excluding, uh, um, putting into camps, uh, sending people back. And on the other hand you've got this other huge group of people, NGOs, and and, uh, in the case of the Greek border in particular, volunteers, uh, solidarity groups, and activists who are there to care. So the messages that come from the border, but also from the whole institutional setup of, of governing migration, is one of contradiction and tension again. So I think that's the, that is, if you like, a condition of possibility 
for for narrating and dealing with migration is how is is precisely that fundamental tension and how we deal with that I think how we criticize it and how can we move beyond it is I think a very crucial question today what happens to those that you feel pity for that you feel you have a humanitarian responsibility for when these people actually leave the faraway location uh, where they find themselves suffering and and come and knock on our doors right conversation with Manel shifts from paradigms of the image and its circulation in the news to norms of the interview as a journalistic practice. It complements Lily's challenges to dominant forms of visual representation with another challenge to the interview as a tool for knowledge formation in both academia and journalism. Take a listen and consider how Manel is actively engaging with the ethical pitfalls of thinking about risk as a concept and how her project, Risk, Relation, Revolution, Repair, attends to these questions. In particular, how does her problematization of the interview format present a critical post-colonial, indigenous reimagination of the interview and media coverage? Um, Noor Salam, it's so nice to see you. Thanks Very for making nice. time for me today. Thank you. Um, and I deliberately start with Salam in order to situate us and think about the place that we're in and how it is that we communicate across different mm-hmm. languages today. Anyway, nice to see you. I'm so happy that you've asked me about media and risk because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot and I'm looking forward to speaking on this topic of risk, relation, revolution, and repair today because I think what comes with risk is thinking about all the challenges and difficulties a lot of us have in the academy, not just within media circles, but also in the academy as Mm -hmm. well. And that's kind of part of what I've been trying to work through in this talk, thinking about what constitutes taking risks in critical media studies, Mm -hmm. because these risks come with dangers. Mm -hmm. And part of what I want to talk about is how we navigate some of those treacherous, toxic spaces in critical media studies. I do so by talking through the potential theoretical possibilities of silences and what silences mean. Um, What happens when we are silenced? What happens when we don't feel like we have a place for potential critical resistance? And so part of what I'm trying to do is think about this idea of situated uh, solidarities in critical media studies. What might that look like? What might that look like if we actually took into consideration post-human understandings of our relationship in land? to think mm-hmm. about love, land, and labor in particular, mm-hmm. and develop a practice of love in critical media studies. And that's risky, right? With that comes mm-hmm. a lot of vulnerability, mm-hmm. but it also comes with a potential for tenderness. And I'm really interested in the idea of tenderness and what that yeah. could look like. I wanted to ask you about how you strive in your own research to address media risk versus your experience branching into broadcast journalism. How does that differ? How do you navigate the role of the academic versus the role of the talk show host? Let's start with risk and how we think about media risk. And I think part of what I've been pondering these days is the epistemic violence that comes with thinking about risk and how might we Mm. more ontologically understand the concept of risk. Because the the question to ask is risky to whom and Mm -hmm. why. 
right? Because not always some, this, the same decisions that you and I would make might be seen as risky, but for other people, yeah, it's normative, it's, yeah. right? It's a different process. Yeah. Um, and part of what, segueing into your second thoughtful question, this idea of thinking about risk is something that I'm thinking about with my show, which is about the themes of risk, relation, revolution, and repair. Mm -hmm. And I've been interviewing people like Mohammed Fahmy. I mean, his life has been in danger. I mean, and to have him in my studio and talk about what that risk meant, taking that risk and coming to that space of safety, whatever safety might look like for him, is something that I'm really interested mm -hmm. in. So then it makes me think about relations of care and the kind of space of care that I can create for somebody like Mohammed Fahmy, who has undergone so much like PTSD and trauma and, mm -hmm. and struggle, and he's sitting across from me, and what is my responsibility to create a nested space for him? Yeah. What would that look like? Um, so that's where I think my responsibility now when I think about media and risk is thinking about that duty to repair. Because I think we all have a duty to repair, but that means thinking about the violence of our epistemic um, histories and what that might look like and taking that seriously and creating a different space between me and the person sitting across from me mm -hmm. who I might be interviewing at that moment. Um, I might be willing to share those stories. And that's why today in my talk, I want to talk about this idea of the coloniality of the interview and how might we challenge those cages, the constraints, mm -hmm. that prison that we force that individual into every day through the interview process. The thing that I've been thinking about recently is how I've been trained as an interviewer mm -hmm. and um, how I've been trained by somebody who's been called the interview whisperer. He told me the winning question you can always ask that'll always lead to a better interview is this one question, what do you mean by that? And for years I thought that was the most brilliant question, what do you mean by that? But now that I'm influenced by post-structuralist thought, influenced by black geographies in particular, mm -hmm. I've come to see just how empty that question is because the coloniality of that, that question boxes people in. I am demanding, asking you to change the way that you respond to that question so that it fits the way I want to yeah. hear an answer. And it's such an extractive question, right? Coloniality yeah. is all about extraction and the burden of proof is put on the person with whom I'm peppering with questions. Yeah. How do we begin to think about the coloniality of the interview? Yeah. And that's the risk that I am taking in terms of venturing into this new space, thinking about the grammar of othering and how might we develop a different language for nesting and for relationality of care. Another thing I find very interesting in your work is this constant care towards not just looking at representation in the media, but the way that representation is done, mm -hmm. the intensity, the, the, the tenor of, of different representations of different groups. Some of what you're saying is this idea of when someone comes up in the media, their right to not appear, their right to invisibility, their right to choose to divulge certain items. Oftentimes, for example, in certain attacks, there is a sort of immediate response of bringing up certain communities and asking them to uh, respond, to give an opinion, to speak to what they think. Um, so speak to us a little bit about how you reconcile we need to have diversity in the media. We need to speak about these communities, but at the same time, we need to reconcile their wants and needs to be respected, invisible at times, or to, you know, to respect that sort of sacredness of their own spaces, their own 
struggle over the mosque or the synagogue or these spaces that are their own. I've been reading Christina Sharp's book, um, mm. In the Wake, Into the Wake. It's such a beautiful kind of exploration of what black life could be if we were to challenge the colonial underpinnings of mm. understanding black life and black geographies. And she tells a personal story about the death of her sister in it. And at one point she says, I'm, I, I want to speak about the death of my nephew, but that is not my story to tell. And I've been thinking about this, this idea of story and how story has been reclaimed in a very colonial context. Everybody has a story now, right? Stories are ubiquitous. <laughs> it's so important to give everybody a space to tell their stories. That's why we have a zillion podcasts. But what does it mean when people think about claiming their story? To what end? And just because you have a story doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to lead to distributive justice in mm -hmm. some way. And so I've been really perturbed by this idea. And because I come from a planning background, I've seen how stories get used to think about uh, the potential of community planning and development, because mm -hmm. people's stories are what's heard to develop in urban planning and other issues as well. Mm -hmm. But how do we think about how those stories are exploited, used, told in very particular ways? And who gets to tell those stories? And who has the tools to tell those stories? So it's hard for me not to think about Audre Lorde, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Because this idea of story, the fact that it's being reclaimed to colonial ends, when mm -hmm. in fact indigenous people, native people, have been using stories for years and years in very particular ways, paying very specific attention to law, land, and labor, thinking about the specificity of the land, these stories are uneven. They can happen anywhere. They're not rooted. So then what happens to those stories? There's a violence of abstraction. Mm -hmm that happens there. And for me, that really concerns me, right? And so part of what I've been working through with that is thinking about the fact that I've been told that I should be thrilled. I have my own radio show. I get a chance to tell a story, right? I have a chance to amplify the stories of the disenfranchised, right? Mm -hmm. And as a mixed-race person, what a, what, a, what, a, what a space of glory for me. So I should be happy, right? But for me, the bigger question is mixed-race visibility is not mixed-race power. Mm -hmm. Right, just because I'm on, I have a place to amplify my voice doesn't necessarily mean that social justice is being achieved in some way. In fact, what we're seeing because of the neoliberal turn is that there's so many people of color who are given a space for a voice. Doesn't necessarily mean that there's a voice for the voiceless, right? There's yeah. just a deliberately unheard remain. So that's part of what I've been struggling with, given that I do have a platform, but a platform for whom and to what end, right? One of the things I've been struggling with is thinking about the process through which I create journalistic representations of mm -hmm. anti-colonialism. What does that look like? Um, because these are all the buzzwords, right? They're thrown around so, you know, carelessly. But to really ground them in a materiality, what does yeah. that look like? And I'll give you one example, just as, as an interest to something that I've been struggling with. So we have something called National Indigenous Day in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I knew for that day I wanted to do a full set of programming around the themes of what it meant to be Indigenous. And my producer and I had many conversations, and she said, okay, I want to do it from the past, present, and future. We're going to talk about the past, what it was like for Indigenous people in Canada in the past. Then we're going to move to the present and talk about what, what it's like from the now, and then we're going to talk about innovation and indigeneity, how it is that different Indigenous groups are thinking about innovation mm -hmm. into the future. And I said, you can't talk about temporality in that way from an Indigenous storytelling context. Yeah. I refuse to use that scaffolding for my program. And it was a really difficult conversation. Wow. Because, of course, in her mind's eye, this seemed like such an appropriate way to think about spatiality was through the temporal lens. And I didn't win that fight because didn't allow <laughs> the grammars of othering were so 
um, strong. so strong that yeah. it was very difficult for me to unravel that moment. But these are the struggles and the conversations that we need to have. And if I'm committed to an ethics of care and a duty to repair, as I try to do, and I don't want to say I get it right because I don't, but if I'm committed to that process, those are the projects I have to fight for. One more interest in how you ran your show that speaks to some of these some of these issues that you talk about with media risk. Oftentimes in the American context, there is a very strong emphasis on freedom of speech. And when you speak about your show in interviews, you, you say it is unapologetically anti-racist. Yes. So how is it that you reconcile being unapologetically anti-racist with encouraging freedom of speech and encouraging what we call difficult conversations oftentimes? I think again it's about that burden of proof that's put on um, uh, systemically disadvantaged people again, right? This idea that we constantly have to feel like we have to prove ourselves into existing, right? Mm. The people that were never meant to survive, as Audre Lorde says. So I mm. feel like it's claiming a space by saying it's not just anti-racist, but unapologetically, I have no reason to apologize for creating a space that's anti-racist. In mm -hmm. fact, that's part of the duty to repair that I'm so committed to. And just taking it back to the idea of risk for a minute, which I think is important given the context of your series. Um, it's about recognizing the fact that even though I will always defend the freedom to speak, speak, it's when that speech hurts people so flagrantly that I have responsibility. And I'll end this talk today, I talk about the fact that we had to get security detail for me a couple months ago mm -hmm. after we had a former white supremacist come on the show and he was, he was aggressive to the point where mm -hmm. we were very scared about what might happen. Now, I can say now, in a different time, in a different place that I don't feel that same fear but at the time it was very terrifying to be with somebody in a studio space an intimate studio space to have conversations with someone who where I felt scared and you know I've talked about that fear of being scared not being able to cross the border and every time I still cross the American border I'm still scared because I know my name is on a list and I know what that might mean for me and for my family so I'm still trying to recognize that to think about how sometimes when we think about my silence when it comes to these things, mm. that the silence is a tool of resistance. It isn't always just a, f a form of subordination, it is also a tool of resistance. And how might I rethink the form of silence too, so. This has been Media at Risk. Thank you for tuning in. for listening. This episode was produced by Noor Halabi and edited by me, Aaron Shapiro. We'd like to thank Emily Plowman, Waldo Aguirre, and of course, Lily and Manel. Barbie Zelizer directs the Center for Media at Risk. For more information, check out www.ascmediarisk.org. <laughs>